All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians. We are trying to stick to the daily Bible reading as best as we possibly can. And so uh, this is part of the daily Bible reading today, and I wanted to give you an overview of the book, but I've had to, I've had to bring the context down somewhat. But let me tell you what I expect to happen here in the remaining time that we have. I expect us to look at 2 Corinthians and land on chapter 4, verse 7. That's where I want us to land, on chapter 4, verse 7. So if you'll go to chapter 4, verse 7, we'll take a look at what that verse says. So that's where we're going to land. The verse says... But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, you obviously know that we have taken the verse out of context. It is a text that has a context, and we're going to broaden that context. But let me tell you what we're going to do with this. In verse 7, we're going to identify what this treasure must be. What is this treasure that we're talking about? And what does God mean when he says that this treasure is being contained in earthen vessels? What does that mean? Now, kind of as a sidelight, I wanted to keep this going from the rewards sermon last Sunday. So I took the context all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So let's just take a look at that. Whether we get there or not, doesn't matter. Uh, we have other things that we need to do before we do this. But let's look at chapter 5, verse 10. And if you have a new King James, would you just read this with me? For we must all appear, everybody together, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There you go. So that was going to be the, the second part of the rewards message. So we'll see what happens. But let's go back to verse 7 of chapter 4 for just a moment. And uh, the fact of the matter is God says, number one, we have treasure. We have treasure in earthen vessels. Now, one of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. And I love that movie because it talks about a, a, a very kind and compassionate family. And uh, <clears throat> this kind and compassionate family goes through a lot of trials and tribulations in helping people through the years. George Bailey, of course, is the main character of that. And when the film starts, he is at a very discouraged place in his life. And he's praying, and he's asking for the Lord's help. So before the help comes, we get a review of everything that has happened to George Bailey before he goes to the Lord in prayer. And asks for help. So leading up to that, we have some of the things that we need to know in order to understand why he is 
dealing with the problems that he is dealing with. Well, in this particular passage of Scripture, we need to do the same thing. We need to go back. And I tried to shorten this context as best I could. So we have to at least go back to chapter 3, verse 7. We have to start there. It would be better if we started earlier. And if you're in the daily Bible reading, you probably already know that and are anticipating that when you read this this week. But we must start at verse 7, or what we say in verse 7 of chapter 4 is not going to make any sense. All right? And unfortunately, it would be my opinion, and you could walk out of here saying, well, I wonder if the pastor's right about that. And we don't want that to be the case. And so in chapter 3, verse 7, the Bible says, Forget the word but, because that then continues the context further back. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly in the face of Moses, because of the glory of his countenance, which glory is passing, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Now, let me ask you a question. When the Apostle Paul begins this in verse 7, he is talking about the ministry of death. What on earth is he referring to when he talks about the ministry of death? He gives us a hint here. He says the ministry of death was written and engraved on stones. Now when you think of anything that was written and engraved on stones in the Bible, what do you think of? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? The Ten, everybody together, the Ten Commandments. But did you know that the Apostle Paul says that the Ten Commandments is a ministry of death? Why is it a ministry of death? It's a ministry of death because God has placed us under the Ten Commandments and we are to obey them. We cannot obey them. And because of that, the Ten Commandments expose our sin and condemn us to death. If you're one of those persons who reads the Ten Commandments and you look at them and say, oh, I, I, I obey the first one and I obey the second and I obey the third and I never do this and I never do that and this never happens, I'm never guilty of this, you have a bigger problem. <laughs> you have a bigger problem. You see, because the Ten Commandments are there to prove to us that we can't live up to them. We can't live up to them. Now, here's, here's the important illustration that he gives to us here. He says, the ministry of death is written and engraved on stones, and it was glorious. And I'm saying, glorious? What is he referring to? I remember back in Exodus chapter 19 when the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai and God said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give you the law. And so I want everybody to prepare for this. You know, in Exodus chapter 19, he told the children of Israel to get washed up, get dressed. They had three days to present themselves. And God said to Moses, I want you to rope off the mountain so nobody comes very close to that. And you'll remember the dramatic event when God came down on the mountain hiding himself in the clouds and the thunder and, the, and, and all of that. So they couldn't see him, but they certainly got an impression that God is right there. 
Is that what he's referring to when he talks about the, the ministry of death, the Ten Commandments, being glorious? No, it is not. Because what does the passage of Scripture say? It refers to another event. In verse 7, the Bible says that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. Now, how many, just to show hands quickly, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but how many immediately say, I know what that's all about. I remember reading about that. All right? Very few hands going up. It's okay. That's okay. That just means that we need to look at it. So go back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 and following. If all your hands would have gone up sky high, I would have said, okay, we can pass over this. You got a picture of what we're talking about, and we'd have moved on. But we need to look at it, okay? You'll remember that when God gave the Ten Commandments, uh, Moses came off the mountain, and he heard this big uh, uh, what do you, he heard this big party going on, right? Kind of like spring break. And when he got closer, he realized that the children of Israel said, you know, they, they decided that they were going to forget about Moses. He'd been up in the mountain for quite a while. And uh, they were going to forget about him, and so they kind of coerced Aaron into allowing them to build a golden calf, and then they had this big party. Well, the golden calf represented the fact that they were ignoring God. And they were actually going back to thinking the way they thought that the people of Egypt thought. And so you'll remember that Moses threw the Ten Commandments down and broke them. He was so angry. And then God said to Moses, 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 you got to come back up to the mountain. Isn't that what it says in chapter 34, verse 1? And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So Moses goes marching back up, walking back up to the top of the mountain. He's up there for a while again. And the Bible tells us that God gave to him, redid the Ten Commandments on two stones, and now he's on his way back down from the mountain, and we have an account of that in verses 29 and following, and we look at it real quickly. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shown while he talked with them. I mean, this is something out of the ordinary. This just doesn't happen. You don't go up to a mountain and come down the mountain and your face is glowing, you see, like a light bulb, you see. But Moses' face was glowing. When Paul talks about the ministry of death being glorious, he's talking about this event. He's talking about the fact that Moses, it was, it was such a physiological thing that happened that Moses had to put a veil on his face. And of course, I don't know how long his face would shine when he was talking to the children of Israel, but the Apostle Paul makes it very clear if we go back to 2 Corinthians that at some point the glory was passing away and one day Moses wakes up and his face isn't glowing any longer. So we know that is true. 
So then here's what, here's what he does. He says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So we have the ministry of death, which is later called, um, um, well, we, we won't spend the time to deal with that because we need to move on. But then we have it compared to the ministry of the Spirit. And if we would read down through this passage of Scripture, let me just, let me just do this real quickly for you. Jump to verse 12. When he compares the ministry of death with the ministry of the Spirit, he says in verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Now, what he's doing there is he's making this comparison and he's saying, boy, that, that ministry of death doesn't even compare to the ministry of the Spirit that we have now. Doesn't even compare. And he then goes back to Moses and he says in verse 13, he says, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away. You know, there's some theology in there. We don't have time to get into that. We don't have time to get into that. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Because notice what he just said in verse 14. For their minds were blinded until this day. The same veil remains unlifted in the what? The reading of the what? The Old Testament. Oh, I know what the ministry of the Spirit. I don't even have to go any further. I know exactly what the ministry of the old what the ministry of the Spirit is. The ministry the ministry of death was couched in the Old Testament. The ministry of the Spirit is obviously couched in the New Testament. And they're excited in verse twelve. With great boldness, they're speaking because they get an opportunity to share the New Testament. Which is not a ministry of death. It's a ministry of life. It's where God gives to us the plan of salvation in Christ, and they're excited about this. Now, he keeps, the, he keeps that image of light going, and this is critical for what we're going to look at next when we jump over to verse 7. He keeps, that, he keeps that alive for us to think about. Notice what he says in verse 18. I'm skipping just a little bit, but I think it's important for you to recognize that in verse 18, how excited is Paul about all of this? He says, well, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. All right. Is he talking about the ministry of death or the ministry of the Spirit, do you think? He's talking about the ministry of the Spirit. He's talking about the New Testament. He's talking about Christ, the glory of Christ. And what does he say? He says, it's like we're looking in a mirror. And when we look into the mirror, we see the glory of Christ. You see? And when we see glory of Christ, what does it say, everybody together? We are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Lord's Spirit that is transforming us from one glory to another glory to another glory to another glory. And I think we need to look at that as intensity. Now, I know we're sitting there and we're saying, well, you know, I... I got a I got a roast in the oven, and I got to worry about whether I'm going back to work tomorrow. And I, 
you know, I got a lot of things I need to do. Uh, um, man, I, is this really relevant and important to me? Surprised I said that, huh? It is. Just notice the excitement of the Apostle Paul when he says, we're, we're, we're being transformed by the glory of God, by the glory of Christ. Therefore, in verse 4, there are results, and I'm just going to mention them to you and then we're going to move on. Therefore, there are results. Since we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. We don't do shameful things. We don't walk in craftiness. We don't handle the Word of God deceitfully. Because, you know, the Apostle Paul was criticized severely in this book. There's no, you're never going to find more criticism of a leader, a, a church leader, than you're going to find in 2 Corinthians. And it's all through the book, from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. Uh, I, it's just incredible the criticisms that people make of the Apostle Paul from Corinth. They're saying, are you genuine? Do you know what you're talking about? Are you really sincere in what you're saying? They're making all kinds of criticism. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul then, what he does here, what he does here, he says to us, he says to us, well, he says, you need to look at my credentials very, very carefully. And I just want to say this in passing so that when you're reading through this in your daily Bible reading, you'll catch on to it, latch on to it, and you'll let it stick in your mind, you see. Because the Apostle Paul, it's kind of like this. If, I, if, 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 the, if, if, the, um, if the, the water man comes to my house, all right, and he has a tag on that identifies where he's from, you see, that's valuable to me, right? Because I know he represents the water company. I'm going to use that illustration because we're dealing with a water situation. <laughs> you probably guessed that. If, um, if I want to know if you're married or not and you produce a marriage license, it's a credential, Right? If you want to know whether I know what I'm talking about from the pulpit and I've been examined and I've been carefully trained, you might want to see my ordination certificate. You see what I'm saying? If I want to know if you have, uh, how smart you are um, as far as all of the rigors of the, of the education system are concerned, I may say, could I see your diploma? You see what I'm saying? And the Apostle Paul was constantly saying to them, listen, you want my credentials. You want to be sure I'm an apostle. You want to be sure I know what I'm talking about. You want to be sure that I'm a guy of integrity. And he looks at them and says, look at yourselves. You're the fruit of the ministry. And they would say, yes. Paul, we're saved today because of you. But they, they, they criticized him constantly. So that's why Paul brings this information to bear in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, listen, we're not walking in craftiness or handing the word of God deceitfully. We have this ministry. It's an important ministry. It's the ministry of life in Christ. It's the new covenant versus the old covenant. And we want you to know that if for some reason you don't get it, you don't experience it, your heart's not open to it, Notice what he says in verse 3. Everybody read verse 3 and 4, especially verse 3. 
Because my question is this. If you don't get it, who does, God, who does Paul blame? Chapter 4, verse 3. Who does he blame? 4, verse 4, too. He blames everybody together. The God of this world because he is keeping you from understanding. That scared me to death. That would scare me to death. If I thought that the, Lord, that the devil was keeping me from understanding the word, from hearing the word, from seeing the word, I would say to him, I'd say, listen, you know what? I'm going to be at every church service I need to be at so I can hear it. I don't want you keeping me from anything that I should be at for me to try to understand the truth of God's word. I think I, I, it would be my personal animosity to him that would make me really, really, really want to know what God has to say. Oh, that's in the text, so it's a little bit of a sideline. But anyway, it's important for us to know. And Paul says one of the other results, of course, is we don't preach ourselves in verse 5. We actually preach Christ. Now, which leads us to verse 6. Now, let me ask this question, and then we're going we're gonna to go to verse 6. In verse 4, when he says that the God of this age blinds the minds of those who don't believe, what's the description of the problem in the rest of the verse? What does the devil not want to happen? He doesn't want, number one, the light. Number two, the light is the gospel. Number three, the light of the gospel is the glory of Christ. And number four, he doesn't want you to identify Christ with God. Those four things. I like it best the way the Apostle Paul says it in verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. This is what we depend upon. This is what we need to pray for. This is what we need to beg the Lord for. Lord, we need you to command light to shine out of darkness. Shine in our hearts to give us what? Number one, light. Uh, not the gospel term is not used here, but knowledge this time. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you look at Christ and you look at Moses and you know that Paul is not talking about physical light. He's not talking about you and I experiencing a physical manifestation of light. It's not like you and I go into a room and we flick a switch and man, all the light comes on physically speaking, so I can see everything that's in the room. He is referring to spiritual light. He's referring to the most important thing, and that is what happens in your heart. So he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's the treasure now? Oh, you're afraid to say. You know what it is. We just went over it. We spent all that time worrying. You know what it is, you're just afraid to say. We have this treasure. What's the treasure? The treasure is the light of the gospel of God in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And nobody can walk up to you and look at you and I mean, they see you smile and they see you're happy and you're rejoicing, but they can't walk up to you and look at you and say, ah, I see that glowing glory from a physical perspective. It's spiritual. Please keep that in mind. It's spiritual. But notice what he says. He says, listen, so we have this wonderful treasure of the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but we have it in an earthen vessel. We have it in earthen vessels. Now, I would assume that if you are going to preserve a treasure, you're going to do more than just tuck it away in a fragile earthen jar. I mean, face it. If you had a stack of $1,000 bills and you said, I'm going to protect these bills... I'm going to put them in a plastic bag and I'm going to bury them out in the backyard. Most people would look at you and say, what? Don't you need something more sturdy? Don't you need something stronger? Don't you need something that's going to last and be durable? You're going to put all that money in a plastic bag and put it in the, in the ground outside? <laughs> See what I mean? People have done that. See the point. But the Bible tells us that it is God who has determined that this wonderful, powerful light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we have and are to share is to be kept in an earthen vessel. And why is, the, why is that? What is the reason in verse 7? Why does He want us... Why does he want this treasure in, our earthen, in an earthen vessel? Well, let me ask you this question first. What is the earthen vessels that he's talking about? It's you. It's your body. It's your fragile body. It's your fragile mortal body. And we have treasure in it. And God says, yep, that's the way I want it to be because I want everybody, when you manifest the treasure, when you keep the treasure and it matters to you and changes your life and it changes the lives of others, I want everybody to know that it didn't happen because of you. It happened because of me. Isn't that the reason? I'm not twisting Scripture there. I'm not telling you something that the Bible doesn't say. The Bible says we have to contend with the fact that we have this wonderful, powerful treasure in an earthly body. And for the Apostle Paul, here's what it meant. Here was his environment. Here was Paul's environment in verse 8 and, and following. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our flesh. Mortal flesh. Now, what's your environment? Now, obviously, he's referring to the environment of his ministry. It was a dangerous ministry. When the Apostle Paul was out there and he was sharing the gospel, it was dangerous. Fortunately for us, it's not that dangerous for us here in the United States, but it is for believers around the world who can identify complete with the Apostle Paul is saying, wondering whether they're going to make it through the next day because of the persecution. 
But what's your environment? What's your environment? My environment is when I go to the wellness center and I pick up a dumbbell, I can't lift it up very far. I don't have the strength to do it. I worked at Anchor Hawking years and years ago, and I would go in and I would, when I would, uh, when I would work in the, in the room and I would be scrubbed one year, I had to do housekeeping and I had to scrub it. I, I, I actually was so vain, I took my shirt off so I could see my six-pack ripple when I, was, when I was doing that. I'm serious. I'm just, I was so vain that I would do that. I could see my six-pack. I could do 17 pull-ups back then. I can't do one now. What is your environment? Is it sickness? What is your environment? I know it's an environment of limitations because the Bible tells us that the outward man, jump down to verse, uh, verse uh, 16, the, I know it's a limitation of some sort, it's frailty of some sort, because the Bible says we don't lose heart because even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Yes, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ is strengthening us inside day by day while we're getting more, 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 more fragile the older we get. It's a fact. It's the way it is. And then notice what this does, you see. Notice that the Apostle Paul says, I'm getting stronger every day. I'm hoping that'll keep me from turning into a grumpy old man. And that I can be really lighthearted. Uh, Don is questioning that. <laughs> saying, Gary, you need to pay more attention to what this is saying because your outward, your inward man needs to be renewed a little bit better. All right? Notice, notice what the Apostle Paul says. Notice, notice what he says in verse 17. For it's, our affliction is what? Light. Do you have that concept? Our affliction is light. Not only is our affliction light, but it's what? It's only for a moment. It's only for a moment, you see. I mean, that's what he says. That's how he interprets this. And he says, when I weigh my affliction, if I get one of those old-fashioned scales they used in the time of the New Testament, you had like a balance, right? You had one thing over here and one thing over here, a tray here, a tray here, and then you'd put your stuff on here and then you'd put weights on this side. And if I would balance my affliction with all of the stuff God has promised me for eternity, there would be no comparison. All the eternal stuff would outweigh all of this other stuff so easily. You'll remember in James chapter 1 when he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that trial is a just really it's just a testing of your faith. But we, we, interpret the, we interpret our life that way because of what Paul says about the contrast between our inward man being renewed by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the outward man being afflicted and becoming more fragile day by day. Verse 5, I'll close with this. We know we won't get to the judgment seat of Christ. We'll do that another time. Don't worry about it. We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, now he's calling it a tent, 
our body is a tent. If this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, if we take it down, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Now, when you, when you look at this passage of Scripture, he says, you know, in our bodies we are burdened. Doesn't he say that? Look at verse 4. He repeats himself in verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan being burdened. It's a burden. We have, it's full of limitations. It's full of concerns. It's full of challenges. And our body is constantly being pelted by the environment and the things that we have to deal with. But he says, listen, we, we, we groan. We groan. But we want to be clothed. It's not that we want to get rid of the body, and I'm paraphrasing that. I, I, I wanted to get you into this and show you exactly how Paul talks about this when he says about being desired to be clothed so that we're not naked. But the whole point is we want to be clothed. It's not that we want to get rid of the body. It's not that at all. What is it that we want at the end of verse 4? We want mortality to be swallowed up by immortality that's what we want and guess what Paul says that's exactly what God wants for you that's what he says now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God that's what he wants he wants mortality to be swallowed up by immortality and then he closes with this very 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 important thing and I'm going, to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring it to your attention. I want you to understand this. It is so important that we have the right, right, um, a right attitude and outlook as far as life is concerned and the difference between the outward man and the inward man. Uh, most of us would probably disagree with verses 5, 6, and 7 where the Bible says, that we are always confident. That, now, this is the conclusion that Paul reaches now before he talks about the judgment seat. He says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, most of us would say, well, I don't know about that. But Paul says it. What does he say is better? Absent from the body, present with the Lord? Or present with the body and absent from the Lord? He's clear. He's clear. Now, I'm going to give you two quick illustrations. uh, And I'm going to close with this because this is is something that you and I need to continue to think about. Uh, Bob Benson, and you've heard, some of you have heard these illustrations. I've probably given them dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the 40-some years I've been here. I've known them probably almost that long. But Robert Benson, Robert Benson's father was a songwriter for Southern Gospel Music, and so was Bob Benson. And he said, uh, I rem- and just to quote him exactly what he says, although I could, I could do it easily. He said, I used to think loving life so greatly that to die would be like leaving the party before the end. Isn't that the way we think? But think about Paul. But now I know that the party is really happening somewhere else. True or false? 
true. You don't believe me? Jump over to Hebrews chapter 12 and read it yourself. Because that's where you have the best description I can think of at the moment of what the party in heaven, in a good sense, is like. Festival in heaven is like right now. Well, these are encouraging words. In a, in a year or two, in two years, we have faced the issue of mortality like some of us have never faced it in all of our lives. Isn't that true? In all of our lives. Let's just face the reality of that. And here's Paul's solution to a lot of our concerns. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would Bless us as we take your word and as we apply it to our lives and we see the fruit of your plan and your purpose in our own thinking. In Jesus, your name we pray, amen.